Good evening, and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy with Part 3 of Enlightened by Love, a series of five broadcasts by David Cayley on the thought of Simon Weil. Imagine two prisoners in neighboring cells who communicate by means of taps on the wall. The wall is what separates them, but it is also what enables them to communicate. It is the same with us and God. Every separation represents a bond. Simon Weil, the name is spelt W-E-I-L, was known during her lifetime mainly for her political involvements. A writer for the magazine Proletarian Revolution, a volunteer in the Spanish Civil War, an opponent of French colonialism, part of the underground resistance movement in Vichy, France, during the Second World War. The fact that she was also a mystic, Christ himself came down and took possession of me, she says, was known only to a small group of friends and colleagues. They died in exile in London in 1943, aged only 34. From tuberculosis, from her insistence on eating no more than the rations then available in France, and from the ravages of a life that had left her, in her phrase, rotten and worn out. Then, after the war, the abundance of spiritual writings she had left behind in letters, notebooks, and unpublished essays began to be collected and published. The woman who had felt at the time of her death, in her words, as invisible as dead leaves, was hailed as a religious genius, and by some as a saint. Vey's appeal as a religious thinker rests on her intellectual honesty. She begins from experience, from suffering, from love, from beauty, and not from doctrine. She holds that religion ought not to be a matter of what we make ourselves believe, but of what we know, and she insists that the test of religious truth is always a practical one. Truth is bread, she says. You know it by its taste. Tonight, David Cayley continues his series on Simone Weil with an introduction to the basic concepts of her religious thought, necessity, goodness, affliction, and suffering love. Enlightened by Love, Part 3, by David Cayley. In 1938, while attending Easter services at a Benedictine abbey, Simone Weil met a young English Catholic who introduced her to the religious poetry of George Herbert. She particularly admired a poem of Herbert's called Love, and often recited it during the violent headaches from which she suffered. During one such recitation, she suddenly felt the presence of Christ as something as close and as real, she said, as the smile on a beloved face. This contact with the divine continued through the five remaining years of her life, and she spent much of these years working out its implications. By the time she died, she had created the outlines of a theology entirely her own. 
She read widely during this period, dipping into Taoism, Zen Buddhism, and the Bhagavad Gita, along with the Bible, the Christian mystics, and Christian theology. And there are many places where her thought draws on these sources, but the whole is expressed in terms that are hers alone. Vey's theology begins with the distinctive doctrine of creation. Usually, the creation of the world is portrayed as an expansion of God's power. Vey sees things differently, says Vey scholar Diogenes Allen of the Princeton Theological Seminary. For her, creation is a contraction of God, a withdrawal in order to let something else be. When Luther talks about the creation of the world, he will sometimes describe how marvelously God's power is. He just says a word and life springs into being, you know, all the, that is made. And it sounds like it's almost easy. So he's just power, so powerful. He just say these things and bang, they happen. And Faye, of course, believes in the power of God. But for her, creation is also a suffering in God. For God has to cease to be all that exists to pull back his power, to allow something to be that isn't himself, and to expose it. It's vulnerable now. That, to me, is very fresh and very powerful. And she's able to connect that to the cross. So often in Christian theology, creation and, and crucifixion are separate doctrines. For her, the very suffering of God in creating a universe that isn't himself, which means he has to restrict himself, allow things to be themselves. You know, things have to eat each other to live, don't they? If they don't, if our deeds don't have consequences, we don't exist. We're like a, an illusion show or a dream, right? Without causes and effects. So God to make a universe that is real with beings that have causal efficacy means there's going to be some suffering. And that causes God to suffer. But in order for us to be, God withholds God's power. The love that God bears us is the substance of our being. God's creative love, which maintains us in existence, is not merely a superabundance of generosity. It is also renunciation and sacrifice. Not only the passion, but creation itself is a renunciation and sacrifice on the part of God. The passion is simply its consummation. God already voids himself of his divinity by the creation. He takes the form of a slave, submits to necessity, abases himself. His love maintains in existence in a free and autonomous existence, beings other than himself, beings other than the good, mediocre beings. Through love, he abandons them to affliction and sin, for if he did not abandon them, they would not exist. His presence would annul their existence, as a flame kills a butterfly. In order that we should truly exist, Vey says, God abandons us to what she calls necessity. Necessity is the set of conditions by which humans can exist as independent beings. And as such, 
says Vey scholar Lisa McCullough of Hanover College in Indiana. It is what distinguishes the world from God. As pure good, God is without limit, without boundary, without division from himself. And uh, the world, obviously, exists according to boundary and limit, determinateness. Its structure and its order and its whole way of being is through uh, limitation, through division, through plurality, through things holding apart from other things. Now, that kind of reality doesn't exist in God. In order to create the world, God has to withdraw his unity, in a sense, divide his unity to make possible a reality that is defined by limit, by structure, by these kinds of conditions. God abdicates when he creates the world. In that sense, he cannot intervene in the world without eliminating it, without causing it to evaporate, in a sense, because the very conditions of necessity that make up the world are what allow it to exist as other than God. If God were to come and try to touch the world, it would dissolve it, dissolve those conditions. And um, there would no longer be this message of love from, from God to God across creation. Necessity is the set of interlocking conditions that make a world. Necessity makes human existence possible, but is at the same time perfectly indifferent to our purposes. It favors no one, subjecting all to fortune, all to death. And yet, says Lisa McCullough, its reason for being, according to Vey, is love, and love alone. Because love is a relationship and can exist only where there is another. God is essentially love. And that is a love that communicates itself to another. In order for God to love another, God has to take an infinite distance from himself. In other words, he has to create an opposite to himself. And he does so in a way that they speaks of as a crucifixion. The crucifixion is the self-sacrifice of God, the self-division for the sake of loving another and making that love actual and real. To describe this division or opposition between God and God, Vey adopts the Christian language of the Trinity. This language distinguishes God the Father from God the Son and God the Spirit, which unites them. God the Father is outside the world and is powerless to intervene in the world because to do so would undo the world. It would discreate the world. On the other hand, there's the incarnate Son, God in the world, incarnate as God's will that the world be created, that the world exist, that, that it be beautiful, that it be beautiful in a way that also causes suffering, that it be determined by limits. And this crucifixion would be if it were just purely infinite distance, would be two realities, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd have God outside the world, pure good, and you'd have the world purely ruled by necessity, which is the incarnate God, and there would be no communication between these two realities. This is where the third person of the Trinity comes in in her thinking that this Holy Spirit is the continuing unity of God 
across the infinite distance between the Father and the Son. So the Father and the Son are truly and utterly divided in the creation of the world. But at the same time, that division itself is mediated by the Holy Spirit so that the unity remains across the distance. And that is the idea of God as love, that this love of the, the Holy Spirit as the love uniting the Father with the Son across an infinite distance. The creation is an abandonment. In creating what is other than himself, God necessarily abandoned it. He only keeps under his care the part of creation which is himself, the uncreated part of every creature. That is the life, the light, the word. It is the presence here below of God's only Son. God is absent from the world, except in the existence in this world of those in whom his love is alive. God is absent from the world, Faye says, except as he lives in what she calls the uncreated part of us, the part of us that is God, the part that knows and longs for good. But the world remains God's creation, the footprint that he leaves when he withdraws in order to let us be. And in this sense, says Eric Springstead, the president of the American Simone Weil Society, every created thing can serve as a mediator or bridge between humanity and God. All that is created is a reflection of God. And we can use these various things in order to be led back to God. There's absolutely nothing that doesn't bear uh, the trace of God in some way. And if we can learn how to use it, it is God's way of making contact with us. There, there's a wonderful analogy that she uses. Two prisoners are separated by a wall, but by tapping on it, they can actually communicate. So that which separates them is also the medium by which they can make contact. And so to see God, we'd probably be utterly blown away. I mean, Moses in Exodus has to hide behind a rock and only see the back part of God. Uh, and the people certainly can't see it at all. But so that God is not utterly distant, all these things that make us different than God are also the very things that can allow us to touch God or allow God to touch us. The dereliction in which God leaves us is his own way of caressing us. Time, which is our misery, is the very touch of his hand. It is the abdication by which he lets us exist. He stays far away from us, because if he approached, he would cause us to disappear. He waits for us to go to him and disappear. I think the idea that she's trying to get at is that in order for us to exist as intelligent beings who do actually have free will, that we need space in which to exercise it. And necessity, in one sense, is actually what provides it, which sounds odd, I mean, because we assume necessity is precisely what gets in the way of our free will. But if the world were not consistent, how could we make choices? 
if it didn't go on in a regular way, what we chose, we'd, we'd never know if it would turn out or not. And so in that sense, necessity is precisely what gives us space to make the sorts of choices we need to be to be human. She gave a couple of examples, one drawn from Kant. A bird might think that it could fly a whole lot farther and faster if it didn't have the resistance of the air. But the fact of the matter is a bird can't fly in a vacuum. Without that resistance, it just simply you can't move at all. We're the sort of creatures that be able to do what we do at all means that we have to do it within certain kinds of limits. And you take away those limits, and in fact we ultimately lose ourselves. One of the keys by which Simone Weil unlocked her understanding of necessity was the experience which she calls affliction. Her French word is malheur, or misfortune. Affliction, for Weil, is the sign of our abandonment. For if God has left the world to us, and left us to the world, if there is no divine puppeteer pulling the strings of our destinies, then nothing but chance stands between us and catastrophe. War, crime, accident, disease, natural disaster, any one could deprive us of personality, reason, life at any moment. Fay was astonished by human misery and would not turn away from it. From this unflinching look, she concluded that affliction is something more than just suffering though it is that. Suffering can sometimes be seen as meaningful and accepted without degradation. Affliction, she says, is the cold touch of blind chance. It involves a loss of meaning and orientation, a destruction of social standing and significance. Affliction is anonymous. It deprives its victims of their personality and turns them into things. It is indifferent. And it is the chill of this indifference, a metallic chill, which freezes all those it touches down to the depth of their soul. They will never find warmth again. They will never again believe that they are anyone. Affliction would not have this power without the element of chance which it contains. Those who are persecuted for their faith and are aware of it are not afflicted in spite of their sufferings. They only fall into affliction if suffering or fear fills the soul to the point of making it forget the cause of the persecution. The martyrs who came into the arena singing as they faced the wild beasts were not afflicted. Christ was afflicted. He did not die like a martyr. He died like a common criminal, in the same class as thieves, only a little more ridiculous. The degrading character of Christ's crucifixion 
is often obscured by the glorious significance Christians attached to this event. But for Vey, degradation was its essence. Taken out of the city, abandoned by his followers, hung on a cross, he believed, according to two of the Gospels, that even God had forsaken him. He was absolutely alone, absolutely without support, as far from God as it is possible to be. And this deprivation of meaning itself, according to Vey, is the hallmark of affliction. The mind comes slap up against physical suffering, affliction, like a fly against a pane of glass. It is unable to make the slightest progress or to discover anything new in the experience, but it is also unable to prevent itself from returning to the attack. To turn suffering into a punishment or a spiritual offering is consoling, but it is a veil thrown over the reality of suffering. Suffering has no significance. There lies the very essence of its reality. We must love it in its reality, which is the absence of significance. Otherwise, we do not love God. The significance of affliction, according to Vey, is its lack of significance. Affliction is not a punishment. It is not a teaching. It is not an opportunity to show off our uncomplaining fidelity. It comes to us by chance, not design, and is nothing but the painful touch of necessity. Affliction is something, says Diogenes Allen, about which nothing can be said. It's a position that is inarticulate. That's one of the marks of it. How can you describe the condition to someone else so that they can understand it? As if you're separated by a great chasm. I don't know if this fits fully, but I can think of once being, or twice, really reaching the absolute limits of a powerful sense of utter helplessness. And this happens at night, because I, I have a, a, an incurable cancer. And uh, the first year of getting to terms with what that meant, I found myself more than once waking in the middle of the night when your defenses are weak, and you're just overwhelmed. You don't know what to do. You're just up against the blankness. And all your usual methods of dealing with it, such as praying or thinking thoughts, just don't work. You're just done for. And there's nothing to say. Well, I think affliction has that mark of there is nothing to say. You just endure it. You're silent. And the vocabulary of a society which is provided by newspapers, television, what you learn at school, you don't have a vocabulary for it to describe what you're enduring. You don't know what, what is happening to you. And in many ways, that's why Christ is so silent on the cross. There's nothing to say. You just endure it. And hence the word waiting, which was really given by an editor to a book, Waiting on God, but it references the Greek word hupomone which means patient endurance. I, I'm modern Greek speaking, and we used to use that word in our normal life and vocabulary. In its context were things like a child, a little child would be very ill in pain. 
The village women did all they could do for it. You have no doctors or nurses around, right? And after they've tried all their remedies and the child is still ill and whimpering and crying, the women just cuddle the child and say to it, Hupomone, endure. And I've I've heard that word said to me as a, a child, and somehow it gives you strength to endure. Well, that's the word that Ve finds in the scriptures and the one she associates with what it is to be inflicted, afflicted. There's just nothing to be done but endure. To endure, for Ve, was to face affliction without consolation. But she recognized that nothing could be more difficult because the mind naturally flees the harsh touch of reality and takes refuge in ideology or fantasy. I believe that the root of evil, in everybody perhaps, but certainly in those whom affliction has touched, is daydreaming. It is the sole consolation, the unique resource of the afflicted, the one solace to help them bear the fearful burden of time, and a very innocent one, besides being indispensable. It has only one disadvantage, which is that it is unreal, and this must be recognized. Even while one is sustained by it, one must never forget for a moment that in all its forms, those that seem most inoffensive by their childishness, those that seem most respectable by their seriousness and their connection with art or love or friendship, in all its forms without exception, it is falsehood. It excludes love. Love is real. Daydreaming is a a way in which we escape or run away from the demands that our life, our experience of time, present us with. And so to give up daydreaming is to give up that escape or denial of reality. This is Father Lawrence Freeman, a Benedictine monk who leads the world community for Christian meditation. The contemplative practice is about coming into the present moment. And as soon as you sit down to meditate, you discover that you're not in the present moment, and that's what makes meditation difficult, although it is utterly simple. It's difficult because we are so habituated to living in the past or in the future. And uh, most of the time, if we could put our thoughts, uh, our complex uh, thought processes on a screen, I think we'd see that we were thinking about the past, feeling sad, feeling guilty, feeling regretful, or we were planning for the future and feeling anxiety about what was going to happen, or we indulge in straightforward, uh, unambiguous uh, daydreaming, imaginary conversations, imaginary fantasies, one kind or another. So I think uh, daydreaming is a very central and very important uh, concept for Simone Weil because of her total commitment to truth. That's why she, although she accepts it is a, an understandable human fault and a universal human condition, she, she doesn't hesitate to say that it is the root of all evil.
Simone Weil was transfixed by affliction throughout her life, and always with a question in mind. What is the point of it? Affliction was plainly a product of chance. To think otherwise would be to imagine a God who designs our sufferings, so the mind could attach no meaning to it in the sense of ever finding an answer to the question, why me? But could the experience nonetheless be put to some use? Her answer was yes. Affliction destroys illusion. The illusion of perspective that puts each one of us at the center of the world. The illusion of personality which convinces us that there is something permanent and substantial about our egos. The illusion of property which attaches us to transitory possessions. All these are barriers that stand between the person and reality, the person and God. But if we can adhere to God while these illusions are being destroyed, Vey says, then we can see things as they are. The man whose soul remains oriented towards God while a nail is driven through it finds himself nailed to the very center of the universe, the true center, which is not in space and time, which is God. The nail has pierced through the whole of creation, through the dense screen which separates the soul from God. In this marvelous dimension, without leaving the time and place to which the body is bound, the soul can traverse the whole of space and time and come into the actual presence of God. The connection between affliction and the presence of God was the subject of a long letter which Simone Weil sent to a writer she had met called Joy Bousquet. Bousquet had been wounded in the First World War when a bullet struck his spine and left him paralyzed and in permanent pain. But through this experience, Weil told him, he had been given a chance to break the shell of illusion in which our perception is normally confined. When once you have emerged from the shell, you will know the reality of war, which is the most precious reality to know because war is unreality itself. That is why you are infinitely privileged, because you have war permanently lodged in your body, waiting for years in patient fidelity until you are ripe to know it. Those who fell beside you did not have time to collect their thought. And those who came back unwounded have all killed their past by oblivion, even if they have seemed to remember it, because war is affliction, and it is as easy to direct one's thought voluntarily towards affliction as it would be to persuade an untrained dog to walk into a fire and let itself be burnt. To think affliction, it is necessary to bear it in one's flesh, driven very far in, like a nail, and for a long time, so that thought may have time to grow strong enough to regard it, to regard it from outside, having succeeded in leaving the body, and even, in a sense, the soul as well. Body and soul remain not only pierced through but nailed down at a fixed point. Thanks to this immobility, the infinitesimal seed of divine love placed in the soul can slowly grow and bear fruit in patience. In this letter, Simon Weil also described for Joy Bousquet what he could expect when this seed bore fruit and he was set free. 
the description draws on her own experience of transcending suffering. You now have only a thin shell to break before emerging from the darkness inside the egg into the light of truth. It is a very ancient image. The egg is this world we see. The bird inside it is love. The love which is God himself and which lives in the depths of every man, though at first as an invisible seed. When the shell is broken and the being is released, it still has this same world before it, but it is no longer inside. Space is opened and torn apart. The spirit, leaving the miserable body in some corner, is transported to a point outside space, which is not a point of view, which has no perspective, but from which the world is seen as it is, unconfused by perspective. The moment stands still. The whole of space is filled, even though sounds can be heard, with a dense silence, which is not an absence of sound, but is a positive object of sensation. It is the secret word, the word of love, who holds us in his arms from the beginning. Four hundred years ago, Martin Luther drew a distinction which has lasted between what he called a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. A theology of glory dissolves suffering in triumph. It sees the crucifixion of Christ as no more than groundwork for his glorious resurrection, his passion as a comedy in which the suffering seems innocuous because we already know that there will be a happy ending. A theology of the cross, on the other hand, stays with suffering and finds in suffering not a prologue to glory, but an irreducible mystery. The theologian of glory, Luther says, calls evil good. The theologian of the cross calls the thing what it is. Simone Weil never quotes Luther, and probably never read him, but she is very much a theologian of the cross. In Vey's essay on the love of God and affliction, Diogenes Allen says, it is the cross that unlocks the mystery of affliction by revealing that whatever we suffer, God has also suffered. God goes the furthest distance of all into what? Destruction, annihilation, so that none of us are beyond his reach. For God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, right? And we're someplace in between. So no matter how bad things get for us, there's always someone who's further away from the Father than we are, and yet he continues to trust and love the Father. And therefore, we can continue to trust and love even when we don't feel like it. That, to me, is the great achievement of that essay on, on affliction. It is, to me, Original. I don't know anyone else who's written this way about it. 
in the history of theology. Now, I don't I haven't read everything, but I've certainly read a lot. I've never heard this in churches. I've been attending church all my life. This, to me, is the most profound and original piece of writing I've ever seen on the crucifixion. In affliction, the splendor of God's mercy shines from its very depths in the heart of its inconsolable bitterness. We may fall to the point where the soul cannot keep back the cry, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? But if we remain at this point and still persevere in love, we will end by touching the very love of God. We know then that joy is the sweetness of contact with the love of God, that affliction is the wound of this same contact when it is painful, and that only the contact matters, not the manner of it. The knowledge of this presence of God does not afford consolation. It takes nothing away from the fearful bitterness of affliction, nor does it heal the mutilation of the soul. But we know quite certainly that God's love for us is the very substance of this bitterness and this mutilation. Simon Weiss speaks here of Christ's cry of dereliction from the cross, Why have you forsaken me? But she speaks of it as a universal human experience. She did not believe that one need have knowledge of the career of Jesus of Nazareth in order to experience what she calls Christ. Salvation for her cannot depend on the dissemination of an historical anecdote, as she puts it. That would be to believe that humanity has a single story, and for her it manifestly has many. Christianity is therefore but one disclosure of a cosmic truth. The cross of Christ is the only source of light that is bright enough to illuminate affliction. Wherever there is affliction, in any age or country, the cross of Christ is the truth of it. Any man, whatever his beliefs may be, has his part in the cross of Christ if he loves truth to the point of facing affliction rather than escaping into the depths of falsehood. If God had been willing to withhold Christ from the men of any country or age, we should know it by an infallible sign. There would be no affliction among them. We know of no such period in history. Wherever there is affliction, there is the cross, concealed but present to anyone who chooses truth rather than falsehood and love rather than hate. Affliction without the cross is hell, and God has not placed hell upon earth. Affliction, for Simone Weil, is a way in which we can come into direct contact with reality. But she does not think it is the only way. Necessity shows us another face, which is beauty. And beauty, in her view, is as much a path to the good as is suffering. We suffer because nature is pure mechanism, indifferent to our human feelings and purposes, 
and our contact with it can hurt us. But we have only to stand back, she says, in order to see this mechanism in an altered light. If we transport our hearts beyond ourselves, beyond space and time, to where our Father dwells, and if from there we behold this mechanism, it appears quite different. What seemed to be necessity becomes obedience. Matter is entirely passive and in consequence entirely obedient to God's will. It is a perfect model for us. There cannot be any being other than God and that which obeys God. On account of its perfect obedience, matter deserves to be loved by those who love its master. In the same way as a needle, handled by the beloved wife he has lost, is cherished by a lover. The beauty of the world gives us an intimation of its claim to a place in our heart. In the beauty of the world, brute necessity becomes an object of love. What is more beautiful than the action of gravity on the fugitive folds of the sea waves or on the almost eternal folds of the mountains? The sea is not less beautiful in our eyes because we know that sometimes ships are wrecked by it. If it altered the movement of its waves to spare a boat, it would not be perfectly obedient. And it is this perfect obedience that constitutes the sea's beauty. Men cannot escape from obedience to God. The only choice given to men as intelligent and free creatures is to desire obedience or not to desire it. If a man does not desire it, he obeys, nevertheless, perpetually, inasmuch as he is a thing subject to mechanical necessity. Beauty, for Ve, is our encounter with what we cannot wish to change. It is our consent to necessity, whether we recognize it in the waves of the sea or in a perfect melody. In the beauty of the world, she says, necessity is revealed as love. Beauty is the supreme mystery of this world. It is a gleam which attracts the attention and yet does nothing to sustain it. Beauty always promises but never gives anything. It stimulates hunger but has no nourishment for the part of the soul which looks for sustenance in this world. It feeds only the part of the soul that gazes. While exciting desire... It makes clear that there is nothing in it to be desired because the one thing we want is that it should not change. If one does not seek means to evade the exquisite anguish it inflicts, then desire is gradually transformed into love and one begins to acquire the faculty of pure and disinterested attention. Beauty, as much as suffering, invites the unanswerable question, why? Why, if the beautiful excites us, does it not satisfy us? Why, if we attempt to force this satisfaction from beauty, 
do we destroy it in the process? These questions, like the why evoked by affliction, direct our attention beyond the world, Fay says. They teach us to read the world as God's creation and not ours. The obedience of things in relation to God is what the transparency of a window pane is in relation to light. As soon as we feel this obedience with our whole being, we see God. When we hold a newspaper upside down, we see the strange shapes of the printed characters. When we turn it the right way up, we no longer see the characters. We see words. As one has to learn to read, so one must learn to feel in all things the obedience of the universe to God. It is really an apprenticeship. When an apprentice gets hurt, the workmen say, it's the trade entering his body. Each time we have some pain to go through, we can say to ourselves quite truly that it is the universe, the order and beauty of the world, and the obedience of the creation to God that are entering our body. After that, how can we fail to bless with tenderest gratitude the love that sends us this gift? Joy and suffering are two equally precious gifts, which must be savored to the full, each one in its purity, without trying to mix them. Through joy, the beauty of the world penetrates our soul. Through suffering, it penetrates our body. We could no more become friends of God through joy alone than one becomes a ship's captain by studying books on navigation. Necessity, as Simone Weil understands it, has a double aspect. From one point of view, it is pure mechanism. From another, perfect obedience, evident as beauty. But in modern science, she thinks, one of these aspects has been left out. Nature has been treated entirely as mechanism, as merely a set of facts. And in this view, she says, there is nothing that a human mind can love. She found an alternative in the science of ancient Greece. Greek science recognized the purely mechanical aspect of nature, she says, but did not neglect its meaning. The blind necessity which constrains us, and which is revealed in geometry, appears to us as a thing to be overcome. For the Greeks, it was a thing to love. They searched for proportions everywhere, in the regular recurrence of the stars, in sound, in equilibrium, in order to love God. Greek science contemplates insensible phenomena, an image of the good. Greek science is an expression of, an attempt to understand the beauty and the order of the world, not the attempt to manipulate or master or control the world. This is Vey scholar Larry Schmidt of the University of Toronto. 
so that the the emphasis that has emerged within the last three centuries has been we want to understand in order to act into nature, we want to act in and transform nature in a variety of ways. That leads to a sense, I think, in her view of limitlessness, of not appreciating that there are things which ought never to be done, ought, ought not to be, be attempted. What Larry Schmidt calls the sense of limitlessness results, in Vey's opinion, from viewing nature as without inherent meaning. Greek science, as Vey understood it, sought wisdom in nature. When it found balance, proportion, harmony, and limits in the world, it took these to be the principles of the soul's salvation as well. So why did modern science take the turn it did? One answer, Vey suggests, was the conception of divine providence with which early modern scientists had to contend. Judeo-Christian tradition, Vey felt, had spoken of a God who is manifest in history and who intervenes in human affairs, a God about whom one can use the language of planning and imperial power. This required science to clear a space free of religion if it wanted to study a necessity which does not vary according to divine caprice. But for Vey, this conception of providence, or how God provides for us, is simply wrong. There is no difference for her between necessity and the will of God. Divine providence is not a disturbing influence or an anomaly in the order of the world, like some cutting taken by us out of the more than infinite complexity of causal connections. It is itself the order of the world. It is eternal wisdom spread across the whole universe in a web of sovereign relations. The net of heaven is vast, says Lao Tzu, and the mesh is wide, but nothing gets through. Every force is subject to an invisible limit, which it shall never cross. In the sea, a wave mounts higher and higher, but at a certain point, where there is nevertheless only space, it is arrested and forced to descend. And like the oscillations of the waves, the whole succession of events here below renders one keenly alive to the invisible presence of a network of limits, without substance, and yet harder than any diamond. That is why things are beautiful in their vicissitudes. For Simon Weil, providence and necessity are finally the same thing. This is a tragic view in the sense that it denies that there is a God who arranges events in anyone's favor or promises a happy ending. But it does create a basis on which to reconcile science and religion, and one that goes beyond the weary view that science and religion aren't in disagreement because they deal with different realities. With Weil, there is only one reality. The difficulty, in her view, lies in our conception of God, about whom we make up fanciful stories that then appear to conflict with the nature of things. She thinks that we need to overcome our desire for consolation and wait for the true God to make himself known. I'll explore her account of how we can learn to wait for God in the next program of this series. 
Christ's crucifixion is charged with no more significance than a pine needle which falls to the ground. God wants all things that are to an equal degree. Christ's body occupied no greater portion of space and occupied space no differently than does the trunk of any tree. It disappeared in no less certain a fashion through the action of time. On Ideas, you've listened to Part 3 of Enlightened by Love, The Thought of Simon Weil. The series continues tomorrow night. Tonight's program was written, presented, and produced by David Cayley, with the assistance of Linda Shorten and Dave Field. Readings from Simone Weil's writings were by Kate Cayley. The incidental music was taken from the piano works of Eric Satie. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. <laughs>